I'm here with Laura Gonzalez, a graduate of CU's chemistry department and a staff member in the College of Arts and Sciences. Laura is a member of CU's BIPOC community and is one of the speakers who took part in the press conference hosted by Diversify CU Now on August 18th. Laura, thank you for coming to talk with us today. Yeah, you're welcome. I just want to add a little correction there. The conversation was not hosted by CU Diversify Now. It was actually hosted by a collective of multiple BIPOC uh, units and organizations across the campus. So the Radical BIPOC Women X and Femmes Collective, CU Diversify Now members also participated in, in that uh, press conference in addition to what we call now the United Front Coalition because we're the folks who are working to defund the police and invest in BIPOC uh, communities. See you, Boulder. Thank you for the correction on that. Um, we appreciate we appreciate that. Um, so one of our first questions is that as someone who has been a longtime member of the CU community, um, what originally made you want to come to CU? So that's a great question. I actually came to CU in 2011 in the summer, like around June. So I was looking at grad, graduate schools. I got my BS in chemistry in St. Edwards University in Austin, Texas. Then I took two years off to work as a middle school teacher teaching science in a very low income alternative campus um, and the border for La Frontera. That's where I'm from, I'm McAllen, Texas. And you know, I think a lot of folks like me, first generation, low income folks, we usually tend to like want to give back or not necessarily give back, but work with our communities directly. So I did that for two years and I knew that I wanted to go to grad school. I applied to multiple colleges and it was between here, University of Oregon and Santa Barbara that I had to make a decision. And I did have a friend at CSU, which influenced me to apply to CU Boulder. I had never really been to Colorado before that. And I think it was mostly the prestige, right? Like at that point, CU Boulder, I recall that was number eight in physical chemistry. And that's how it was sold to me. Like we're number eight in the nation. We have a lot of uh, Nobel Prize winners, which I didn't, I was not aware of before until I came here to visit. So that really caught my attention as a first generation alumni and student, you know, I was like, oh, that's going to be great. I'm going to learn a lot. And I came here kind of, I guess, randomly because I was the first one in my family to, to even graduate from undergrad and then go to grad school for a STEM program. What has your experience been like as a first generation student? Well, it's been, it's been fun in certain areas and it's also been difficult um, in many other areas. So it's been fun in terms of, I think I have learned to grow thick skin through full microaggressions, you know, that I faced as an undergrad, like the whole thing about like, oh, you're that, you're the minority scholarship recipient, right? Like affirmative action. And I was able to brush that off, you know, that resiliency of like, oh, I have faced this kind of um, microaggressions and microaggressions in my life. So that's one of the strengths, you know, the resiliency, like I said, in many, many ways, being able to work with the little that I have, right? Like, or I had, because I have to admit now I'm not low income, I'm middle class. So um, able to, to really be innovative and creative with everything that I had, you know, networking to survive. So those would be the strengths. The various would be being just the first one, being the first one to go to school, right? Like even not knowing um, how do I navigate the bus transportation system in Austin, Texas? Like we really had no bus transportation system back home. 
had like a one bus. So like just things like that, you know, learning how to even bike. Like that was not a thing back in my hometown. Um, just seeing like, um, you know, na navigating campus policies. Like I didn't know about opportunities, scholarships, you know, how to choose classes, who to talk to. So those are a lot of barriers that I faced and I faced them again in graduate school. Like I didn't know which questions to ask in terms of like what would really be a welcoming, inclusive and supportive atmosphere for me to not just survive, but thrive in graduate school. And uh, it's one of the reasons why I believe I ended up wrapping it up with a master's and not a PhD because I did not feel like I had that support that I needed to really, really thrive. So you've mentioned lacking some of that support um, and then some of the microaggressions you faced. So um, during your time as a student, um, would you say that those are a lot of the recurring issues that you saw um, when it came to uh, diversity and inclusion on CU's campus? Or would you say that there are other issues as well that you also saw that were frequently occurring or recurring? So, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of, and I want to give a big shout out to the CAM program, the College Assistance Migrant Program in Senior Works University. We also have a small little facet of that in the School of Education in the Women's Center. So I want to give a shout out to that because that CAM program at my undergrad institution was seriously the, what made me thrive, what helped me to thrive, because I had a huge community of uh, Latinx, Chicanx, Chicanx students um, that were similar to me, first generation, uh, brown kids, you know, some lighter skin uh, kids, white Latinos too, but it was mostly like a brown, low income, first generation, um, I think cohort of like 30 students, I can't recall. So, and they, you know, even before like we started the program, we had like this whole retreat to make relationships. We had an office that we could go to. We had tutoring, we had resources, we had things like folklorico. So I don't think I was able to value that as much in undergrad because I was in the chemistry program where, and I realized when I came to grad school that that's what I needed to survive and thrive here that I didn't have, right? Like I did not have that community sense. I did not have that sense of belonging. I did not have that sense of being included. And there's a lot of similarities between the undergrad and graduate program in terms of um, if I look at the chemistry portion of it and not the entire experience. So I would say most of my experience in Austin was, I was successful because of the camp program. You know, I had that strong community with me. And the chemistry department though, in undergrad, I was very by myself. I was like, I think I was the only brown known Asian person in the undergrad program. So that felt a little bit more lonely, very competitive, very, you know, folks wanted to go to med school. They didn't really were supportive a lot. They came from a lot of very wealthy backgrounds because it's a private school. So that felt like transfer, that experience transfer fully at CU Boulder, right? It wasn't just my graduate program, but it seemed like it was everywhere in Boulder. So, you know, even though my cohort of graduate program, I would say they were supportive, they really tried to like get together, you know, not just like socially, but also academically to help each other out. It was hard to not see myself in the cohort program for, I don't think I saw another um, brown or black Latina until three years into the program. Um, I don't think I ever had 
a Latinx professor or indigenous professor. I don't even think I had a black professor now that I think about it, you know, ever. So not seeing myself, not just outside of chemistry, but in chemistry has been very difficult. Uh, the microaggressions from like professors and students was rough. You know, I had a professor who asked me, um, are you sure you want to be here? And that really stuck with me because I was like, yes, I am sure. You know, I have worked hard to be here, not just myself. And my parents have worked hard for me to be here. And my grandparents have worked hard for me to be here. I know that I want and deserve and I have worked to be here. But when someone questions you that, especially back then, I wasn't as aware of things like imposter syndrome, stereotype threat, you know, of all these other issues like that I'm aware more now. I didn't really know how to coach myself out of that, right? So that really impacted my mental and emotional well-being. And it's a form of academic violence to really question your belonging here. So I had a professor ask me that. I even, when I brought it up to other folks, you know, I had another instructor say something like, oh, but they're just like that with everyone, right? And I'm like, well, that doesn't justify it because if you really want a commitment to equity, you're really hear student stories, right? And most of my cohort, a lot of their parents were professors at other universities. You know, they were not first generation or low income folk. So, you know, there were not, there wasn't that many kids of immigrants. So um, English wasn't their second language. So all these layers, right? They're not, they're not navigating this world in a brown red body. So not understanding equity and not supporting me in an equitable way it was a form of academic violence. Also the fact of not having that cultural competency to understand like how are certain Latinx communities, right? We're very community oriented, family will come first. And not understanding that sometimes from like um, other folks, how like that was my first go-to, right? Like that was not, that was another form of, I wouldn't even say microaggression to me, it's a macroaggression, right? Because I am not included in the way that they think. So yeah, I even recall like I have, I have a, um, there was another uh, Mexican student there, brown man in my group. And I recall when he came really upset and said something about how our advisor told him because he was late into a meeting, we're not in Mexico. You know, so it was just this continuous like ways of communicating with us that they're not including our human experience that's different than the dominant culture at CU Boulder. So that was very dismissive of um, my experience. Um, I know that a lot of folks say that it's a microaggression, but to me, it felt like a microaggression that I decided to leave with a master's. And um, it was a hard decision because I worked, I published a first author paper. I published like two co-author papers, or I think three, now that I think about it. You know, I did a lot of research. I was there for three years. Like I collaborated with other scientists and seeing some of my colleagues from that year or the year previous graduate with a PhD with no first author paper on their research. You know, it was, it was hurtful. So for me, it was really hard to live that decision, but I could not really continue allow that psychological, mental, emotional violence towards me because folks just did not want to do the work. 
So I would say that was my experience with chemistry. You had mentioned uh, that when it came to the other students in your cohort, there was kind of a big difference in background, specifically mentioned that a lot of them had parents who were professors and then with yourself as a first generation student. Do you feel like that? Uh, how do you feel that kind of difference in background, specifically academically, kind of played into your experience in the department? Yeah, well, you know, I don't feel like I had even like the money to not worry about what I was going to eat the next day, right? Like I did not have a mom and dad that I could go to and say like, you know, I'm like struggling with rent. Um, I also had my niece living with me for other reasons. I come from a mixed status family, which is another intersectional identity. It's another layer to my identity, to who I am. So I would say that, you know, like with the students, like I had kind support, like they cared about me, they care about my niece, but I don't think I had that understanding of that, what that, what that was like. I would hear a lot of the things that really would get to me, to be honest with you, was like how a lot of my colleagues would be like, oh, I'm so broke, I'm so poor. And I was like, no, like you ain't struggling. Like you have a mom and dad to go to. You know, you have like this support, which is great. Like I wish all of us had that. And a lot of us don't, right? It's kind of like the pandemic. We're living through a similar storm. You know, in some areas, it's a little bit harder than others. And we're all navigating this storm in multiple mediums, right? Some have a yacht, some have this big boat, some have like a little paddle and some have nothing at all. Some are just swimming, trying to swim and survive through this storm and water. So I think that was like hard for my, for the people that I was studying with to understand. Like I think they tried, but they didn't really, maybe didn't try that hard. You know, like I had discussions even with a, some another grad student who who tried to say to me like how I was given so many things in my life I was given my education I was given because I, I I was a welfare child so you know how I was given all these things by the government handed to me and that I'm still complaining and I'm like you are the daughter of a Cuban and Chilean immigrant Right, like we all know as Latinx immigrants that Cubans, because of the political divide, because of the po because of political issues, Cubans can come to this country and get the support that other Latinx immigrants do not get, and that includes that includes you know a social security number to work, that includes educational support, and that includes other things for support. And I'm not saying they do not suffer, and there are multiple layers, especially their light-skinned immigrants. So, you know, I even had that discussion with one of my colleagues, how like they felt, right, that I had, like I was handed all these things when I was like, no, I was not handed any of this. I work hard to get this. And my parents work really hard in spite of being immigrants without the privilege to have documentation right away because they come from a country where there is a political divide with the United States, right? Where we had like more barriers to get here and to be here and for me to succeed here. So it was just like, it was like, it seemed like a consistent struggle and it seemed like I had to choose between like, do I put up with some of this crap? Because, you know, I just can't fight everyone and everything because I don't have that emotional capacity. Like, how do I pick my battle? So that was like, that was many of the reasons why 
if I felt excluded, you know? And I, I don't think I felt like I was excluded. Did that answer your question? <laughs> yes, yes, thank you. Then with these kind of issues that you've seen and felt from your student experience, and kind of with the divide in background and with some of the issues with not feeling supported or kind of feeling excluded by um, some of the communities in CU, how, how did those spill over during your time as a staff member? How have they kind of, have any of those persisted into your time as a staff, staff member? For sure. Yes, for sure. I mean, society ain't evolving as fast as some of us wanted to, right? And it's, it's not just like on campus, it's also just society like Boulder as a city. But I'm going to focus on CU Boulder. Yeah, like, I mean, a lot of folks have a hard time hearing this. And CU Boulder is a white supremacist institution. It goes by policies and rules that will protect those at the top, right? It's a vertical hierarchy and oppress those at the bottom. Um, many examples that I can provide many examples of why I, I, I don't want to say I believe that. I know that um, in terms of policies and procedures, but also you know, as I mentioned, as a staff member, like I recall at one point because I will speak to the janitors because guess what? Guess what janitors look like? They look like me, if not darker sometimes, right? So, and they speak my mother tongue. They speak the first language that I know, which is Spanish. So what would I do? I also grew up in that, in that community, right? I was raised in Mexico and then I came to Texas, La Frontera. So you know, I have always really been surrounded by Latinx communities and mostly brown Latinx uh, folk. So for me, seeing them is like seeing my community, is seeing my mother, is seeing my friends. So yes, I would talk to them all the time. And I would, you know, the whole handshake thing, like I'm still friends with a couple of custodians until today from where I work in chemistry. And it seemed like intimidated some people because I was, asked in a very diplomatic, and I'm doing the quote unquote diplomatic way to not speak Spanish in the office. Um, why was that? Because it was making other folks feel uncomfortable, right? Maybe they thought I was speaking about them, who knows? But, you know, even that, like, that's, that's a huge microaggression right there, right? Like, we don't, as a United States country, we don't have a formal language. We don't have one formal language like, for example, um, France does, you know, it's French, Germany, like we don't have that language, a formal language. So for me to be told that, yeah, like that was really highly upsetting, right? And, and just many experiences, because I think that the problem with you, Boulder, is very white dominated and it has this culture of similar to Boulder, right? Like, we are this progressive people and we are not racist. So it seems like there's this culture, uh, my mom says this all the time of like, tapar el, dedo, el tapar el sol con un dedo, you know, which means like covering the sun with one finger. Like we just think because, you know, we're progressive, we're nice people, you know, we're not racist. And what we have been saying as BIPOC folk, BIPOC folk if you want to include us, that is not enough. That is just not enough, right? And like right now, it, what's trending right now, how to be an anti-racist by Ibram Kendi, which I'm not like 
you know, criticizing that book at all. I haven't even read it. I'm sure it's great. And I do want to say that he's not the first one to say that. Angela Davis was the first person, or maybe not the first, I'm sure she wasn't the first, but she really brought attention, right, in the 60s and 70s about how not being a progressive liberal wasn't enough. Like you had to be anti-racist to really, you know, work towards social change, which is why we haven't changed that much since the 60s. Some folks may say like, oh, we have made a lot of progress. I'm like, what do you mean? We can drink from the same water fountain now, right? But the fact that we're still facing violence in the academy, violence in society, it is still like creating um, psychological and mental illnesses in our bodies, you know, in terms of, of the hesitation that a lot of the white dominant culture does not want to accept, right? Like if I speak a little bit too much, if I challenge or question anyone at a meeting, right? If I come into very proud into my cultural, you know, clothing, if I want it to be, if, if a black woman comes with their um, natural hair, right? If we do any of this, we make folks uncomfortable because we are proud of who we are and we want real change, right? So yes, I see it everywhere. I see it like, like I said, I just don't see it in like Boulder City, but I, it's very, it's a huge problem at CU Boulder and which is one of the reasons why we're speaking up in terms of defunding the police and funding into BIPOC communities directly and yes, the students are at the center because that's why I do this work. So I appreciate students so much. And students cannot succeed without the support and the representation of staff and faculty. So it, it is this community where we have to support each other, right? And like to really retain a lot of BIPOC students, CU Boulder has to really look into its policies and its structure to retain BIPOC staff and faculty, because we're leaving. Did I answer your question? <laughs> yes. No worries. Uh, yes, kind of with anti-racism, as you mentioned. Now, when it comes to your personal uh, view, what would you want kind of like anti-racism on CU Boulder's campus to include? Is there anything specific that you would want it to address based on your time here? Oh, I would want it to address so many things, but let's start with the basics, right? I think the basics is that we have to come to a collective agreement and definition of what race and racism is, right? Because we cannot do anti-racist work if we don't even agree on what race and racism is, and they are not interchangeable. They are, you know, they're related, but they're not interchangeable. So um, one definition that I want to provide to the public who is listening is racism is prejudice plus power, right? Like, yes, I can have prejudice towards a white person and that is not nice. That's also damaging, right? But I have no power. If that white person wants to call the cops on me or they want to even just put a file complaint to me at work, which has happened, right? Like. I'm the one who's in trouble because I don't have that power in terms of that racial hierarchy. So, and CU Boulder's not there yet. So I think if we really want to do institutional anti-racist work, 
that is the first thing we got to work on. Like, what is that definition of racism that you Boulder has, right? Um, also, the other thing that I would like for CU Boulder to start looking into is racial equity, specifically. I would love racial justice, right? And based on current events and what's been happening historically, we're not achieving racial justice. So racial equity is a bare minimum to work on for the historical oppression of Black and Indigenous and people of color in this country. So racial equity is, in my opinion, the minimum commitment, right? But racial equity tends to be diluted with other meanings, right? Like, for example, we have, the regions have signed a definition of diversity, which includes political affiliation and political philosophy or something along those lines. I can't recall the exact definition, so I don't want to quote it word by word. And what I tell folks, there is a difference between being born the way you are. I cannot go home and like bleach my skin. I mean, I know that a lot of folks work in that, which is violence, right? To wanting to bleach your skin, but I cannot just change the color of my skin, but I can go from like Democrat to Libertarian to Republican to whatever I want to choose, right? Like that political affiliation can be switched from one day to another. So I'm not saying that we should discriminate folks by because they're Republicans or they're whatever, you know, but that is not the same experience that a black or brown person has, right? That is not the same equity that we need to provide to specific uh, groups of racial, uh, specific people of racial groups. So I think the, the first thing should be, let's just define racism, right? Because the current method right now is that we go to through OIC, the Office of um, Institutional Equity and Compliance, which even that word, right, we have been in discussions with the OIC to change that meaning because it seems to be deceiving and not just my experience and a lot of students and other staff BIPOC experiences, right, when there is a report. And one example that I can provide you is that OIC has acknowledged that they defend reverse racism. And reverse racism is something that I think we need to denounce. We need to say like, that's not a thing, right? Systematically, that doesn't work. So for example, if I were to say, let's say that you have something in your office that's offensive to, to me or right now in your room, right? And I'm like, hey, you know, like, let's say that in the background, you know, that is a little bit offensive as someone who has indigenous roots, you know, like that's not... Um, that can be offensive to Native and Indigenous students. So let's have this conversation, right? And let's say you felt offended, right? You're like, oh, you only called me out because I'm white. So you go to OIC and complain about me and OIC investigates, right? Because now I have made, I, I guess I, because you reported as like, it's, it's because I'm white that this person made this statement, right? Or that this person wanted to have this conversation and there's no dialogue, right? Like that's the other problem with OIC. If there is a report with OIC, according to uh, the folks that I work with, the supervisors are told that they, they cannot have these discussions. And the investigation goes for a while, right? I have participated in these procedures once and I will never do it again because I felt gaslighted. Right? They asked me, is it, be is it because he, he was a white man that you made, you know, that you were concerned about this issue? 
And I was like, yes. And it's not just because they're white. It's just because if that, they're not part of this culture, that can be damaging, especially to the Native American and indigenous students who we already are losing at higher rates than anyone else. They're like the ones who drop out at higher rates. And we should ask ourselves why. So there is, and that's one of the reasons why I say like CU Boulder is a white supremacist institution because it has this laws, right? Like it goes by the Civil Rights Act. It has these laws, policies, and procedures that will protect a lot of white folks if they start feeling uncomfortable. And I think one of the problems that I have seen with co-workers since I've been working here for a long time is that there is a confusion between being uncomfortable to really have a courageous conversations about race to being unsafe. They like to claim like, well, she makes me feel unsafe. And it's like, no, there is a huge difference between being uncomfortable and being unsafe because you don't get to go walk in the street, be afraid if a cop pulls you over and get and feel that anxiety in your body. You know, you don't get to worry if you're going to be falsely arrested. You don't get to worry about your community members, you know, so there that is unsafety right there, right? A lot of us have higher rates of obesity. We have higher rates of uh, giving birth. We have dying at, at giving birth, you know, we have higher rates of diabetes and that all of that is because of colonization and white supremacy placed upon us. You know, this history of illnesses, which is why we're dying at higher rates of COVID during COVID is because it's not just a one-time thing. There's been this historic oppressions against our bodies, right? We have, ha we have faced so much violence for 500 years that we're still like feeling that today. So that is some safety right there. That is not uncomfortability. And what I have seen is like, I, I'm sure you have heard the term white fragility by Robin D'Angelo, right? Like white folks tend, when, they, when that white fragility thing happens, they tend to confuse the two. And they're like, well, she's making me feel unsafe. And it's like, no, it's uncomfortable. And that's the other thing that I think we need to change institution wise. It's like, if we, cause I've been hearing this a lot in all across campus, in my unit, you're my unit, you know, because it's a trend now to say that you're anti-racist, right? So I've been hearing a lot, like we're truly committed to anti-racism. And it's like, well, how can you be committed to anti-racism if you're not willing to be uncomfortable? Because we can't do anti-racist work if we're not uncomfortable. And that's coming from someone like me, a brown red woman. I still get uncomfortable in some of these conversations where, there are, uh, there is a different oppression to, for example, black women, X and femmes, right? And I have so much to learn and unlearn because we're colonized people. We have learned to be anti-black. I was raised with anti-black comments, with anti-black actions. I have been guilty of those too. So to me, it's a little wild how I think like, you know, we really have a chance to do a change. And if you're not willing to be uncomfortable and really push yourself to be uncomfortable, we're never going to be truly anti-racist. And that's the other thing that's been like upsetting, you know, something that I have seen, like I created this whole circle of having courageous conversations about race. And I follow this protocol by Glenn Singleton, who's a black man who has 
done a lot of these workshops across, you know, K-12 schools and higher ed institutions. They have a huge program in New Zealand with indigenous communities down there. And it works, you know, it's shown that it works specifically with white folks, how you navigate and sustain and engage in these conversations. So I had this circle like about a year and a half ago, and there was uncomfortability pushed into this group, right? And I decided to close it because it was always like folks did not want to be uncomfortable. So, you know, I decided to not continue that because I felt like that was energy, emotional labor that wasn't paid and not recognized to continue doing really difficult work for not, you know, for being told that I'm making other folks uncomfortable. I decided to just drop it. And then come May, end of May of 2020 during a pandemic, folks are forced to watch a video of a black man being lynched by a white cop by his knee for eight minutes and 46 seconds. And now we have all these book clubs. Let's talk about anti-racism. Let's talk, let's how to be an anti-racist. And it's like, you cannot have a conversation a year and a half ago. You cannot hold a conversation about race. How do you, how do you expect to become anti-racist in like, it just doesn't happen that way. So, you know, it's, it's been a difficult experience for me in terms of that, like how a lot of the work has been misinterpreted, what I've done in terms of um, conversations about race and how to see folks like really make true commitments on anti-racism by like hosting book clubs and discussions without including a lot of BIPOC people into these discussions and how to move forward. So you mentioned a little while ago um, some of the, how sometimes health has also played into some of these issues, um, and I wanted to just take this moment to address um, kind of BIPOC mental health, which you spoke in part on with the press conference that took place on August 18th. You specifically spoke alongside a, another member of our BIPOC community, Ruth Waldemichael, about investment and investing into mental health resources for BIPOC community members, um, specifically those who can apply experience directly to the BIPOC experience. What motivated you to speak specifically on that factor of divestment during that press conference? My own personal experience and not just my own and seeing my community members, right, that look like me and beyond uh, folks that BIPOC folks, how we have a different experience just surviving this, this campus, right? Like, and it's not a monolith, so I'm not speaking for all Latinx or folks with indigenous roots, right? And it, it was that, the fact that, you know, mental health, at least in my culture, in my family, it's, it's a myth, right? It's not something that we go through for the reason of generational trauma, right? Like, we may not want to address it, but we feel it in our bodies, right? And like the lack of access that we have to mental health in our own communities, right? And then to come to a white supremacist institution where it's a predominantly white, right? We're gonna face more violence, even if the intention is not there, which is something else we gotta have conversations about, intent versus impact. But even if the intention is not there, we are going to face more violence we are gonna feel more isolated and excluded. We don't see people like ourselves in our programs. 
you know, then we want to go to a mental health provider and they look nothing like us, or they do not understand how white supremacy impacts our lives daily, right? Which is a great question that I provide to my BIPOC students. You know, when you go to a mental health provider, ask them that question. So what do you think about how white supremacy impacts my mental health as a BIPOC, you know, or insert your race, ethnicity here? Um, I think those are important questions to ask to mental health providers. Um, also the fact that if there's not a cultural responsive, you know, we don't heal the same way. Sometimes we, the one thing that we say in, 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 in our gente is like la cultura cura, culture heals, right? So we need specific ways of healing. We cannot just heal by the white dominant um, mental health framework, right? We need frameworks of racial and social justice to work with mental health. So I was very passionate about this, about that because of my own experience. Experience because I wish I would have had access to mental health providers from a young from a younger age. I did not go to a mental health provider into grad school, and I stopped going because I felt like that person did not understand me. So you know, and then we have FSAP, but I don't think FSAP's enough. That's the faculty staff and something. It's like I forgot what the A stands for, but um, it's like the CAPS version for faculty and staff, and. Um, you know, there was very few folks of color there. And the fact that I have, like, I can't even, I don't even have a choice to choose like a brown woman because they're not there, or at least they weren't the last time that I checked in with them. You know, maybe that they speak Spanish. There is one person that speaks Spanish at the moment so far that I know. So it's just that, right? And like, I started thinking also about custodians and facility management and frontline service employees, right? They're getting less than 35K a year. What is the work that the institution is doing to talk to them and introduce them to like mental health? Is anyone talking to them about that? Is anyone telling them that's a resource? How are you talking to them about it? How are you like being culturally competent to talk to them about it? Because you just can't Sometimes if you bring like a resource like that, they're gonna think like, you think I'm crazy? You know, so it's like, and there's this taboos in our culture, right? That, that's why the cultural um, competence is so important and not just like cultural responsive, but like if that is not the person's first language and they don't speak English that well, then we need either a therapist that speaks that language or an interpreter. So, and I've been saying how if we have more mental appropriate health support, we would, survive this institution in a much smoother and easier way than we do today. So with this ongoing conversation, do you feel like as of now you have seen any kind of change, either whether it be within the university environment or the wider Boulder environment? Do you personally feel like you've seen any change or do you feel like we've kind of been still stuck in the same spot? I think that's a complicated question to answer, and I don't know if I can answer it right now. I think what I can say to that is that, you know, pessimism is a real feeling, right? Because I have read history and I have seen how the Civil Rights Act, you know, how white folks did help in those marches, and then once policy changed, you know, then you have white flight. You had all these other issues happening that have, you know, that impacted the segregation that we have today. 
So there is a little bit of that in me, like that pessimism is like, okay, so, you know, it's great. There's more white folks fighting on our side than ever. And still the majority of white folks are still not supportive of things like Black Lives Matter. I think the last time I looked, I think it was less than, than 48% of white folks that they did a survey, you know, so it's still not the majority with Black Lives Matter or with, you know, um, even condemning white supremacy, like which is had recently from the president, right? Like that hesitation to even condemn white supremacy. And I knew the question wasn't just white supremacy the way I talked about it to the institutional, but white supremacists, like extremist groups, like the KKK and the Proud Boys, right? There's a difference. Um, it's the same, but it's a difference. So anyways, um, that realistic pessimism in me is gonna say like, I don't see any change right now. And what I do see and gotta give credit to is momentum. I do see momentum happening at City of Boulder. You know, I see momentum happening in Boulder County, in the city of Boulder, in Lama. There's like multiple movements to demand justice for Vanessa Guillen, Bernard Taylor, you know, Elijah McLean. There's also movements to start looking into racial equity policies, just like the, the ordinance of like no more than three non-related people can live together, which folks may not realize, but that's a racist policy. Who do you think lives together that's not related? You know, who's the majority? Yes, it's grad students and students because they're low income and it's a lot of black people, right? So um, I'm seeing momentum and I wanna applaud that and I want the momentum and encourage folks to continue doing this to also expecting and accepting that change is not quick and we cannot give up right now we've got to continue the fight i also want to welcome white folks to like do the inner work you know um teach yourself if you contribute to bipoc black and brown specific businesses you know people support them especially if you learn from them you know, support them economically, support them in multiple ways that you can, get involved in the system politically. Um, so I do wanna continue folks to like continue doing the work, you know? And it's hard for me to see change. I would say that there are conversations in my unit right now to like work towards a more inclusive and anti-racist uh, work. And to me, I have a hard time saying if that's a performative allyship or if that's an active allyship. I have a hard time saying um, the latter because it's like, well, you have to see the problems that have happened before and how do you address those, right? So yeah, I don't think I have seen major change I think I have seen conversations that it will happen. Um, and now that I'm thinking about it more, um, there are folks who are support, supporting the anti-racist treatment and anti-racist language in the classrooms. So that kind of change is happening. And also I'm seeing that in departments and professors that I expect them to adopt them, like ethnic studies, right? And then you have the sociology, very racial justice lens professors and, and instructors. And what about the other ones? So to me, it's like, I'm saying, I'm having a hard time saying like a wide system change. Maybe there are pockets and we got to give credit to the pockets, but I haven't seen it. I don't think I'm seeing a campus white yet. And I hope to see it.
now you mentioned kind of like people who are trying to kind of make that change or get in or kind of that momentum that's going on. So for those who are, who want to help out and get involved in this conversation, but might not really know where to start. Do you personally have any recommendations to them, to our listeners, where to start or um, where they might want to look to educate themselves? I know you mentioned, of course, earlier that they have to be uncomfortable and willing to kind of be uncomfortable for this conversation. So is there any anywhere you point them to or is there anything you would want to say to them? Yeah, I think be willing to be uncomfortable is a big one, you know, speak your truth, like in terms of like your own personal, I myself truth, right? Don't speak for others, um, which is something I work on too. And whenever, if you're a white person or you're a person who has, who's, because we have a racial hierarchy, right? Who's higher higher up in the ladder in the racial hierarchy compared to someone who's in the bottom, regardless if you're you're not white and non-white POC that's higher up in the ladder, right? And you're having a conversation with someone who's um, there's different power systems, right? Whenever this person is talking to you about their experience, believe them. Do not gaslight them. Do not try to justify how they what the other person did. Like, are you sure though? I don't think they're racist though. Like do not try to justify it. Really believe in them and do not tone police them. And I know that gaslighting and tone policing may be new terms for some folks, Google them, right? If someone tells you do not gaslight me, do not tone police me, you may not know at the moment. I think it's really shows a lot of humility to just stay quiet or say like, actually, I am sorry if I did harm. I'm gonna go like take some time and learn let's come back to this conversation because accepting and expecting on closure is important right to come back to that conversation so like googling terms like that right like tone policing so that means like you know let's say we're having a real conversation like a real one and i'm gonna get emotional right and i'm gonna may say i may say custom words i may raise my voice and i those those feelings are justified they are justified for multiple reasons, not just my current experience, but my parents' experience and my sensors' experience. So, you know, that's tone policing, like really like, oh, but you're not being professional. Oh, but you're like, oh, you know, like you're saying that in a meeting, like, oh, you're making folks feel uncomfortable. That's tone policing right there. So, you know, whenever you have a conversation with a BIPOC, see it as a gift. See it as a gift to grow, right? Like, Hey, even if it makes you feel uncomfortable, if you're starting to feel uncomfortable, check that. Why is it that I'm feeling uncomfortable? Is this the first time that someone like straight up tells me that? And if a BIPOC person is going to be real with you, it's because they actually care about that relationship. So in my opinion, it's like, be, be grateful because there comes a time where I'm like, you know what, it's not worth it. I'm just going to step away, right? So I think like just seeing that, and then if you want resources, honestly, I think Ije Omoa Olua, and I'm sorry if I'm like butchering her name, and she's the one that, so you want to talk about race, you know, Angela Davis, um, Audrey Lord, you know, just really look at history. Uh, there's this other book that I want to talk about, I forgot, what is it? Oh, Me and White Supremacy. That's another good one. That's actually like very action. Like, let me work on some like journals and like do inner work, you know, me and white supremacy, how to be an anti-racist. And so you want to talk about race. Those are three books that I think folks can really start looking into 
But if you have a conversation with a BIPOC person, like I said, say it as a gift, be grateful, you're uncomfortable, you know, you can say that I'm uncomfortable and I believe you and I need some time to teach myself and some other things that you said, because I don't know. And I don't expect you to teach them, teach them to me, right? Unless you compensate them. I think that's fine. Or unless the person really wants to do it without being asked, right? Then that, there's a difference with that too. Um, sorry, my phone just went on. <laughs> so does that help? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, thank you. Now that comes to the end of my questions, but while uh, we are speaking, is there anything else you'd like to say to our listeners? Is there anything else you'd like to, uh, to bring up or anything else that you would like to say um, to those listening? Go vote. It's important to vote. Um, it is not my job to influence you who to vote for. And I do want to encourage you to start thinking of like, how do I bring up consciousness to my vote? Not just an individual consciousness and a collective one, right? Who are at higher risk right now in this society? Is it undocumented communities? Is it BIPOC communities? Is it women and femmes? Is it immigrants? So let's start thinking like, how can I consciously make a decision, including a lot of vulnerable communities in this country, right? So please go vote. I think that's really, really important, especially young people. You know, you are the future generation. You will be the most impacted for the years to come, for the Supreme Court decisions and how we move forward to transform the system. Go vote, uh, get involved, right? And getting involved can be from like running for city council to calling your reps to just doing the inner work yourself, right? And if you have the economic means, put your money where your mouth is, right? Like go donate it into the bell funds that we have for black mothers, you know, brown women, X and femmes. Go support local black and brown artists, uh, indigenous people. So, you know, if you have those means, put that money into that. Laura, thank you for coming to talk with us today. Yeah, of course. Um, you have a good day.